Previously on Telehell. Where does the Brady Bunch Variety Hour? Where does the Brady. Hang on, folks, I gotta take this. Hello, Telehell. Slow down there, honey. Were you about to wrap things up? Yes, I was. We were about to reach the nine circles. Well, before you do, the boss just alerted me to a discrepancy on your progress this season and that you can't wrap things up until you cover them. And one of our messages is bringing you two episodes of this show right about... Now. Good luck, honey. No. No, it, it, it can't be. Nope, 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 nope. No, 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 no. I am not going through this a second time. And now, Telehell continues. could have given me the Brady girls get married. They could have given me the Brady brides. They could have given me a very Brady Christmas. Hell, they could have given me that 90s spinoff where the Bradys get their own melodrama. But I guess those weren't vicious enough of a torture. In case you're joining us late, I'm being punished for skipping a few episodes for reasons that were not even 100% my fault. So now... In order for the season to end properly, I'm now being forced to look at two additional episodes of a show that should have been the death knell for the variety show format, but we had to wait four years for Pink Lady and Jeff to be the nail in the coffin. The sooner we get through this, the better. But before we do, I at least owe you a reminder of how we wound up here in the first place. The Brady Bunch Variety Hour was originally a one-shot TV special produced by Sid and Marty Croft that aired Thanksgiving weekend of 1976. All of the original cast, except for Jan, came back to show off the full range of their talents and probably got paid an obscene amount of money to do so. The show turned out to be one of the highest-rated shows of that weekend. Then again, people were probably nursing a turkey coma so massive that they were unable to change the channel. So, naturally, ABC, then being run by Fred Silverman. Okay, enough of that, enough of that. Come on, knock that off. He quickly ordered up more episodes of the show as a mid-season replacement. Two of which, the first one and the final one, are the ones we're going to be looking at today. Of course, seeing one episode of the show is torture enough. Two more of them back-to-back might make me eligible for a lifetime supply of straitjackets and Esalen. But, like I said, the sooner we do this the better. Bring it! January 23rd, 1977. Jimmy Carter was recently sworn in as the 39th president of the United States. A much better TV show was going to debut and this show ends. We are proud to present the triumph of an American family, Roots. And at 7 p.m., 6 p.m. Central and Mountain, 
we go through this bullshit once again. The first show we're looking at is technically the first official episode of the series, since the other show we looked at last time was meant to be a special. So, really, this is episode two, which begins virtually the same way as before, with the Croftettes kicking things off while a version of the theme song plays, but at least this time around, we don't get the added benefit of kazoos leading things along. I really gotta learn when to keep my mouth shut. Anyway, we see in the roll call this week's special guest stars, which for 1977 was pretty significant, if not a transparent attempt to pimp out other stars on the ABC network back then. A few other notes. A reminder that Ann B. Davis was only to appear on a handful of episodes to reprise her role as Alice. But more importantly, we get the addition of one of the more superfluous TV personalities of this or any other era. Rip Taylor. For those who don't remember, his main shtick is that he throws confetti while saying one-liners. And somehow you can turn that into a 50-year career. May he rest in peace. We'll get to what makes his part significant in a moment. But first, let's get to our first number in this edition of the Simpson Family Smile Time Variety Hour. A reminder that this aired in January of 1977, a point in time when the nation's obsession of the bicentennial came to an end because who would want to celebrate a 201st birthday? And just when you're thinking to yourself that this is the worst thing to happen to the song Yankee Doodle until Barney and Friends happened 15 years later, the Bradys then poke fun at Yankee Doodle's erectile dysfunction problems. I assume. Yankee Doodle, keep it up! Yankee Doodle, keep it up! Keep it up! Keep it up! Here we go again! From there, we get another montage of swimming from television's most unnecessary swimming pool. And once again, I find myself asking, why? Don't get me wrong, the sight of women in bathing suits swimming in sync is a welcome distraction from the Bradys telling Yankee Doodle to wait about 30 years for Sildanafil to be invented. But I can't help but think that if the show did away with the swimming pool, maybe it might have been able to afford a higher tier of guest star, or dance lessons for Robert Reed. Nevertheless, the number comes to a flag-waving end as the Bradys attempt to perform witty banter disguised as comedy once again. Everything's new tonight. We have a new show. And we have a new year. 1977. Yep. And he didn't even peek at the calendar. <laughs> and we still have a new Jan. What's your point? We have this terrific new show. It's on every Sunday night at 7 o'clock, um, 6 o'clock Central Time. Uh, 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 excuse me, honey, that is not quite right. I know, I goofed. 5 o'clock Central Time? Oh, no, no, it is 6 o'clock Central, but uh, it won't be every Sunday night. Actually, Mrs. Brady wasn't joking about that. For some reason, even though ABC was pleased with the outcome of the first special, they still had a pretty solid schedule on in prime time as it was. So, it was originally decided that the show would only air once a month during times when the Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries needed a week off to search for clues. Oh, I just started getting a clue. Really? Yeah, I'm totally getting a clue. Oh, that's giving me a clue. Yeah, 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 I've got a raging clue right now. That plan lasted until March of 1977, when the Young Detectives ended their TV season back when TV seasons could end in March. 
Afterwards, the Bradys were able to inflict pain on a weekly basis. The banter remains as forced as a family reunion, and just like in the first episode, they go to commercial continuing to dance as though their contracts depended on it. The Brady Bunch Hour, brought to you by Oscar Mayer and Company. Well, one would have to be full of baloney in order to support this enterprise. As we begin with the Bradys moving into their new home, which I swore they already did in the November 76 special, but again, that show was more of a one-off show. This was the actual show themselves, so I'll let the retconning slide this time. The family is confused as to where their newly moved furniture went. Fortunately, the Brady's equivalent to DuckTales' Junior Woodchuck guidebook shows up. Alice, the movers were supposed to be here at noon. Never trust a mover. Believe me, I went with one once. First he stole my heart, then my dining room. Well, never fear, Alice is here with 70 pounds of emergency gear. So, that's what we're looking at for this first segment. The mystery of where the Brady's furniture went. Do we need the Hardy Boys on this one? Oh, Frank, seriously, I have such a raging clue right now. I think we better follow it. As the family tries to make more bad comedy, the family then hears some suspicious noises. Pa Brady investigates only to find out that it's America's favorite purveyor of confetti. I am Merrill, the fastest mover in California. Fastest? You gotta be 12 hours late. Well, that's a record for me, my dear lady. <laughs> you want to move any faster, it takes an earthquake. And before you think that Taylor was only going to be here for this one episode, think again. The character he would play here turns out to be a recurring character who works as a jack-of-all-trades. Whether it be as a moving company here, or a real estate agent there, or even as a love interest for Alice somewhere else, Taylor was pretty much put on to be the Frank Nelson to the Brady's Jack Benny. Oh, mister. In other words, be their frequent foil. Which, quite honestly, would be an improvement on the family's lack of abilities elsewhere. Or at least it would be if Taylor just dialed it down a little. Oh my goodness, do you know what I've done? (laughs) I moved out of my own house! (laughs) Silly me! My mind is going, and so am I. Did I say a little? I meant mute. And now, for no reason, we just segue into a musical number. Are we just gonna forget about the Brady's furniture problems? Keep on the old razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle No, seriously, what about the Brady's furniture? You can't just set up something like that and then not have a resolution. Please be more specific as to how they solve the problem. What if your hinges all are rusting? What if in that you're just disgusting? So we're just letting it go. Come on, even the worst sketch on SNL has an ending. Though you are stiffer than a girder, they let you get away with murder. Okay then, we're just going to accept the fact that perhaps one of the writers of this show started on his or her idea, went to lunch, and then quickly realized, holy shit, I'm working for the Brady Bunch? And then heads home after realizing how futile the struggle to come up with something creative may be. Get used to that sentiment, because there's still 75% of show left to go. Sue begins with Marsha in their yet-to-be-furnished home, setting up the next segment that has nothing to do with getting their restored furniture back. Alice, what are you doing with my dolls? What difference does it make? You're a grown-up now, an adult, a woman. I want my dolls. I don't want all my dolls. Just, uh, 
my scarecrow, my lion, my tin man, and my toto. Which leads us to our first big fantasy piece of the show, an interpretation of sorts of The Wizard of Oz. She's just being witchy. <laughs> And if you're seeing the same thing that I'm seeing right now, congratulate yourself for never needing to take a hit of acid ever again. In this fantasy, Alice is the Wicked Witch, though based on the makeup and costume job they gave her, I swear she was a relative of Rankin Bass's Heat Miser, while wearing one of those wacky, wavy, inflatable, arm-flailing tube men as a hat. As for what it is exactly that she performs... I've lost the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow, and I've got to find them all! Okay, so clearly it's not the MGM version of the music being performed here because that would probably have cost the Crofts more than they could afford. So with that, Alice the Witch sees the principal characters, in this case, Marsha as Dorothy, while the Brady Brothers and Rip Taylor play everybody else, as they're driving... their... car... down the yellow brick freeway. And they're heading for... Emerald City! better not. They couldn't possibly. I'd like to pose the same question that I asked last week when looking at clowns that are currently responsible for my psychiatrist's new car. What the fuck am I looking at? I mean, leave it to Sid and Marty Croft to come up with a way to make 1985's Return to Oz less creepy eight years before it even happened. But damn it, they did it. Not only that, but I'm willing to PayPal or Venmo five bucks to anybody out there who is willing to give me a reasonable explanation as to what The Wizard of Oz has to do with a Rose Royce song, Car Wash. And don't give me any loopholes like, but they had a scene in the movie where they get all cleaned up. No, that's the easy way out. I want a full-on justification as to why these two elements with seemingly nothing in common are existing before my eyes. To add insult to injury, I would probably be a little more positive towards this alleged performance if any of the singers were actually on key. Come summer, the work gets kind of hard. This ain't no place to be if you plan on being a star. Let me tell you, it's always cool. And the boss don't mind sometimes if you uh, act a fool at the I know cocaine use was on the rise in the 1970s, but if 30 seconds of this performance aired on TV as a PSA, drug usage would have cratered dramatically and John Belushi would still be alive today. I will give them a sliver of credit on at least one thing in the performance. At least Rip Taylor dressing up as the Cowardly Lion is a more convincing cat costume than anybody who appeared in the 2019 Cats movie. Somewhere in the midst of an experience that will make me eligible for shock treatment is a plot that vaguely resembles The Wizard of Oz, as Alice's Wicked Witch comes back to cause trouble.
points for brevity, I guess. Why belabor the point? Then again, and this thought just occurred to me just now. Why try to attack them in a place that's constantly spraying water if that's one of your big weaknesses? Seriously, the Wicked Witch should have worn turtle wax. At least that way the water could only beat on her and she might be okay. As we try to forget how batshit insane that last segment was, we say hello once again to Fake Jan, aka Jerry Rochelle, as she tries to introduce the next segment, but can't for some reason, so she gets Peter to help out. You have to excuse my sister, but she's a little shy. So I'll tell you, remember what happened the first night when we moved into our new house and there wasn't any furniture? I remember. Well, I know you remember. We have to tell them. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, anyway, we got our own furniture now, and... Well, come along and see what happens. Oh, so I guess the writer of the sketch came to his or her senses after realizing just how much money they would wind up losing if they broke from their contract. Okay, then, how does the furniture saga end up? We are now officially moved into our new house. Yeah. <laughs> okay, kids, time for bed. They get their furniture back. That's all, they just get their furniture back. Not since Lord of the Rings has there been such an epic saga. Okay then, how do we fill up the remaining five minutes of the segment? Well, the Brady parents want to spend some quality time together now that everything's moved in. But since this is TV and the designated family hour, something has to come along to prevent this G-rated show from getting a P attached to it. Brady, oh Brady, this has been a terrible, terrible mistake. Yes, I know, Mr. Merrill, but we've got the right furniture now. But you have the wrong house. Oh, Mr. Merrill, don't tell me you move houses, too. Now, don't get in such a huff about this. I'm not here to discuss the moving business. I'm here to discuss another business. My card. Merrill's real estate rentals. I'm also in life insurance, auto leasing, and turquoise jewelry. Well, it wouldn't be a cheesy sitcom or variety show without getting an equally cheesy misunderstanding. And what better way to misunderstand than being told that you have the right furniture in the wrong house. But not just any house, one that belongs to our obligatory special guest stars. Mr. McBride, I'd like to meet Mr. and Mrs. Majors. Oh. As the world knows, he is the six million dollar man, and she is, of course, one of Charlie's angels. Yes, Mr. Merrill, we have seen them. <laughs> Remember the original run of Will and Grace? Especially how in the last few seasons they would have a cornucopia of guest stars on the show as themselves for increasingly ridiculous reasons, all in the hopes that people would tune in to help boost a dying franchise? Well, that trend may have actually started with Here's Lucy, Lucille Ball's third sitcom. Problem is, it worked a little too well, because many TV shows since then have adopted stunt casting as a way to inject themselves with adrenaline Pulp Fiction style in an effort to save itself. And say something. Something. The use of guest stars on this show is just one example of that. And we're only on episode two. So the determining factor in figuring out just how forced the cameo is in this case is just how natural the interaction is between the guests and the stars. How does that turn out? Gee, this is a great house. Uh, did you have it for the whole week, did you? Oh, no, we just moved in yesterday. Only oh, ready for a day, huh? <laughs> Now, that's the teensy-weensy mistake I was telling you about, you see. When I rented you the house, I didn't know they were going to buy it. <laughs> buy it? This is his house? Mm -hmm. I'm terribly sorry. I'm terribly hey, sorry. Hey, it's not your fault. Farrah does all the hitting in my family. <laughs> oh, hit him, Farrah. Oh. <laughs> 
this little thing's gonna hit me. <laughs> this little thing has a black belt. Oh, no. We're, we're just so sorry that you drove all the way down here for nothing. Oh, it's okay. It was a nice drive, and we'll just go home and spend a nice quiet weekend. Oh, no, we won't. That's why we came down here in the first place. Oh, that's, that's right. We're having the house fumigated this weekend. Turn lights. I don't know. Uh, you're sure we wouldn't be barging in on this thing, huh? No. No, no, you're, you're welcome to stay up. If you don't mind camping out on the couches. <laughs> oh, are you kidding? A couch is a luxury. I mean, every time we go camping, we find some sharp rocks for us to sleep on. <laughs> then it's settled. We'll stay. How about some champagne? I'd love some! <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> I got this new rental couple. I've got to get this new place tonight. They've got to get a room by this evening. Oh, how many rooms did you say you had? Never mind. Excuse me. I beg your pardon. Thank you. Busy, busy, busy. Good, sweet lord. That was death. And I'm already dead. The least they could have done was pretend to give a damn. How bad must things be in order for Rip Taylor to be the highlight of that piece? How many rooms did you say you had? Never mind, excuse me, I beg your pardon. Take it. Busy, busy, busy. We begin the second half of the show with the announcement that it's the second half of the show, just in case there were any viewers emerging from their own personal comas. Hi, and welcome to the second half of the Brady Bunch Hour. You know what I really like about our new show is that you get to see us perform, but you also have a chance to see the real Bradys, the way we are at home. Like what happened after Lee and Farrah Fawcett Major spent the night at our new house. Well... Look, we get the point. This isn't the first time they came across a famous face in their home. Just ask Marsha. You know, I'm sorry about the mess that you're in because of that letter I wrote to you. Oh, no. It's my fault. I never should have promised I'd get you to sing at the prom. But still, if this weren't any more forced or contrived, this would be a late-era episode of Will and Grace. At least do something that doesn't insult our intelligence. (laughs) I think I'm having your dream. You know, you talk just like you do on television. It's a miracle. It is, it is. And me, do something. (laughs) A miracle. The fact that two famous people show up to crash for the night, you consider... A miracle. Now, every drop of rain that falls in the Sahara Desert says it all. That's a miracle. All God's creations, great and small, the Golden Gate and the Taj Mahal, that's a miracle. Test tube babies being born, mothers, fathers, dead and gone, that's a miracle. Those are miracles. Having Lee Majors and Farrah Fawcett show up at your house is dumb luck. Please, do us a favor and dial down your innocence by about 90%. Alice. <laughs> give her a kiss, Lee. I won't have to give her a raise. <laughs> which he does, to which Alice immediately thinks to herself. We then get another one of those solo pieces that highlights the Brady kids. This time around, we get fake Jan performing her version of Elton John's Your Song. And if you remember last week's show, you'll know that part of the reason why Jerry Rochelle was hired to fill in for Eve Plum was because of her background on the stage and performing alongside various musical acts, including Sammy Davis Jr. So with that, hopefully the producers made the right call. It's a little bit funny this feeling inside I'm not one of those 
be honest. She's okay. Just okay. I certainly wouldn't put her in the same league as other stars of the era like Olivia Newton-John or Debbie Boone, but she's not bad considering the circumstances. In fact, fast forward to 2011 when Rochelle puts out an album, no joke, called Fake Jan Sings For Real, and she's actually improved somewhat over time. So, credit where credit is due, Fake Jan at least keeps the show going. We continue things with... Oh, hell no! What the fuck is the Croft Brothers' sick fetish with clowns? This is the second week in a row that I had to put up on these Harlequin horrors. Now I know for certain that I am in hell. Somebody, please, give me a shot to sedate me. I don't want to see these clowns anymore. I'm just sick of them. I'm just absolutely sick of them. Oh, oh, thanks, Satan, for morphine. But seriously... Even though I made it clear last time that Florence Henderson's musical skills are arguably the highlight of this and possibly every other episode of the show, it's not going to matter in a scene like this. Granted, the clowns in question are that of the cast doing actual clown-like things in a downbeat number, but at least there's no unsettling extreme close-ups of... Yeah! Oh my god, what have you done to Marsha? Uh. I'm okay. I'm okay. Look, I know this is supposed to be the low-key moment of the show, but right now I regret putting chlorophobia on my application when I first arrived here. Thankfully, I've been assured that from this moment forward, there will be absolutely no more clown porn for the rest of this episode or the next. So now we quickly get away from that reason to up my meds to the introduction of our next act, but not before Greg dunks Peter in the pool once again, which I think was the show's biggest running gag. You're supposed to be helping me introduce Captain Cool and the Kongs? Yeah, Greg, I know, and I'd really love to, but, um, well, I'm really trying to get close to this girl. <laughs> Let's answer everybody's favorite burning question. Who the hell are Captain Cool and the Kongs? Don't get left behind. Take a trip with us today. We will lead you to a land of dreams. Well, aside from their band name unfortunately having the initials of KKK, the group was a creation of Sid and Marty Croft for their Saturday morning program, The Croft Super Show. The group hosted the show that featured a rotating group of series like Wonderbug, Dr. Shrinker, and most famously, Electra Woman and Dina Girl. The show itself lasted two years and is still fondly remembered by the baby boomers who originally tuned in. Cool and Crew's appearance on this show, however, is just as cheap a synergistic cash-in as all the other stuff we've seen so far. Not that they were bad or anything, but this is still a little strange to watch, and certainly a lot better than watching more clowns. Also some trivia. The leader of the band, aka Captain Cool, was played by a young Michael Lembeck. 
who just a few years later would become a regular on the original One Day at a Time, and would later go on to direct several TV series, most notably the early seasons of Friends. After that palate cleanser, we get to the show's end piece. We are going to do our regular finale, Young and Old. Young and Old Hearts? Oh, my Young and Old songs about hearts. Oh, sort of hearts greatest hits. <laughs> you mean we get to hear Barracuda? Oh, of course not. The Wilson sisters would never do a show like this, even if you put them in a cage fight with Mike and Carol. No, they mean heart in the title. Such as this. You gotta have heart. And this. And this. And this. Heart of my heart. And this. Don't come breaking my heart. I couldn't do that. And this. And this. And the audience forces itself to applaud for what passes for entertainment. And now that we're nearing the end of the episode, I think it's safe to say that we've figured out the show's rhythm and patterns. It starts with a bad musical number, then bad comedy, then another bad musical number with bad comedy mixed into it, then bad comedy again, followed by a solo piece from one of the Brady kids, then Florence Henderson's piece, then the musical act, then the overblown finale with even more off-key singing and off-beat dancing, and then the cast eventually wraps it up. Fairly straightforward formula when it comes to variety shows. You just gotta bear with how they execute it. So, at least, we know what to expect when we eventually look at the next episode. And you know something? Maybe it's because I've developed a callus of sorts towards not just this show, but all the other shows that we covered in the past few months. But despite a number of things that really pushed me close to the edge, I think it's okay to let my guard down a little for the next show which happened to be the last show of the series. And despite everything, even a bad show has to find its groove sooner or later, right? You see, when the world was a square, people would start to hear and it fall off over here. Yeah, I'm gonna need some more morphine, please. Uh, we'll cover a very Brady finale. After the break. Marsha. Shut up, Mom! One, two, three, four. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. I never said that, honey. Shut up! Got to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. It never is! (laughs) 
This trip through Telehell is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. May 25th, 1977. A small independent movie from a galaxy far, far away called Star Wars was released in theaters. And if you couldn't get a ticket to see it on opening day, you were probably stuck at home watching Episode 9, The Last Braidae. We know the drill by now. The Crawfdads dance, vintage Brady picks go by to the hum of kazoos, and we get whatever the hell this is as our opening number this time. Eight episodes in and Robert Reed is still stiff as a board, but at least they're almost entirely on key at this point, with heavy italics on the word almost. The swimmers are using their precious airtime to spell out the word love one letter at a time, while surprise surprise, one of them does a dive from 20 feet into the air like they did the previous eight episodes. The song wraps up, and since this is the last show, they're certain to go out with a bang. Maybe they finish the song in the key of Q. Regardless, we now kick off one more family monologue. Or is that famalog? Either way, this one involves Carol seemingly unable to stop singing for a few minutes, even though she's earned the right to do so however she pleases. I got love. I got love. I would like all of you out there to know, we welcome you back to another Brady Bunch hour. I got love. We're not supposed to be singing. We're supposed to be saying hello to millions of people. Hello! millions of people makes the world go right. Fucking hilarious. Let's see if they can hit that note again during the reprise. Not great, but better. Then again, that's like saying covering an open wound in salt is better than using lemon. This time around, we begin not with bad comedy, but bad music, where everybody's dressed as 1920s newsies in 1930s golf pants. And unfortunately, Alan Menken is not involved. Life is a funny thing, sometimes you laugh and sing, sometimes you grumble and cuss. But either way, what do we care? We got us. And as I'm watching this, I have a question. And this time it's not, what the fuck am I looking at? But rather, why am I looking at it? There was no build-up, lead-up, or prompting of any kind that helped kick off the song. Granted, there were other songs that we've seen that just started up out of nowhere, but at least there was a previous segment to segue out of. Well, it turns out they're actually doing things in reverse this time. First, the song. So what if life's design gives us a minus sign? We got a mighty big plus. And then the comedy, or lack thereof, to help accommodate it, as Peter comes across Rip Taylor once again, this time as a wacky bum. Somebody's been throwing trash in your luggage. Trash? Trash, did you say? These are mementos. (laughs) This is a memento. This is just a hanger. Yes, but the hanger from Airport 77. (laughs) Wait a minute. Everybody's dressed up in 1920s clothing, and Taylor is making jokes about current things? 
Maybe this is the point where the writers realized that the show was getting canceled and they thought to themselves, fuck it, I'd rather go see what that newfangled Star Wars movie is all about. And this is where they begin to give up. And this is uh, just a battery. Yes, but now watch this. <laughs> Assault in battery. <laughs> so, while you're contemplating the idea of Carrot Top exiting the chat in disgust, the two of them perform that old standard, Me and My Shadow. And with that, the reminder that although Rip Taylor does most of the grunt work here, Christopher Knight did not want to sing on the show, but rather do sketches. A point which is made evidently clear thanks to this new torture replacing waterboarding in the updated edition of the Geneva Convention. Now we'll be high, just give me a clue. I'll do everything that you do. And my shadow Not a soul to tell my troubles If things should go wrong, I won't get cross As long as you know I'm the boss Our next piece is a performance by country legend Lynn Anderson And since she's one of the few highlights to be seen here We can breeze right past her But first, fake Jan gets one more chance to shine as she introduces her Our next guest is my favorite female recording star She's nice, and she's pretty, and she sings great, and she writes songs, Jan, and she's Jan, what are you doing? I was trying to introduce Lynn Anderson. She's one of the best singers in the whole I world. I know how good Lynn is. Good? Try great. Okay, great. Good. She's the best. And that's all we really need to say about this segment, because it's hard to find fault in actual talent. Not unlike our next guest, famed music composer, Oscar nominee, Phantom of the Paradise, and 45-year consecutive winner of the Cousin Oliver Lookalike Contest, Paul Williams, who comes by the Brady's house for the same reason all the other famous people do. They just happen to be in the neighborhood. Is something wrong? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's just I've only seen you on my TV set before, and uh, I really wondered if you'd look different in person. Oh, well, do I? Bigger. <laughs> oh. Okay, this is going to be interesting, especially considering two factors. One, this was probably the biggest time in his career. Having written hit after hit for the likes of The Carpenters, Three Dog Night, and Barbara Streisand, among others, so for him to do a show like this was actually kind of a major coup for Sid and Marty Croft. And two, the fact that he was currently at the peak of a well-documented period of his life where he got rid of those rainy days and Mondays with drugs and alcohol. Keep that thought in the back of your head as the show goes on. Meanwhile, Williams makes a move on Carol, and it goes just about as well as you think. There's something I've wanted to tell you for a long time. But we just met. Do you mind if I say something kind of personal to you? Well, no, I, I guess not. <laughs> I'm in love with you. You're what? He's what? He's what? <laughs> It gets worse. Well, I never met before. Just walked in here, told my wife he was in love with her. It doesn't happen a whole lot around here. You, you, you want to tell me what's going on? Nothing. I'm, uh, I'm just in love with your wife. Oh, my God. It gets worse still. Uh, you're all excused. Are you going to punch him out? Bob, your father doesn't punch people out. Good. Anybody uh, over 5'5 five, five punches me out, it's assault with a deadly weapon. <laughs> Anybody know the 
penalty for assault with a deadly weapon? Peace. Peace and love, remember? The 60s? I try not to. And the worsening continues some more. But in all honesty, not only is this moment right here the only time I legitimately laughed at something involving this show, but at the same time, this may be the best acting Robert Reed will ever do in anything Brady-related. For certain reasons. I don't believe this! Do you want me That. All I did was tell him the truth. The truth is, you happen to have a very foxy lady for a wife. Don't you think I know that? Don't you think I know that? You marry her because she is a foxy lady. My foxy lady. And she's gonna stay my foxy lady till the both of us check into that big holiday into the sky. Williams then tries to justify making a move on a married woman that can't simply be boiled down to the fact that it was the 1970s and being a swinger was in style or something. It's my fault. I'm sorry. I, I do this. I make people crazy. My shrink says that I have a compulsive personality. He thinks it's because I'm short. Every now and then I just bust out and do something compulsive, like telling Carol that I love her. Look, I want to give you something. This brooch was my grandmother's. My grandparents, who were very nice, would, would like to know that it was safe in the hands of a nice couple like you and you. See you tomorrow. Somehow, him writing Rainbow Connection for the Muppet movie makes a lot more sense. Naturally, Carol is charmed, while Mike still has his doubts. Just then, Lynn Anderson comes by the house to try her hand at acting, and also to give the sketch its punchline. Guess who I just <coughs> met? Paul Williams was outside. Now, he is really something, yeah. Yes, he certainly is. <laughs> he came running up to me. He told me how much he loved my records, and then he started telling me how much he loved me. Uh, let me show you what he gave me. Look at this. It was his grandmother's. Signed, sincerely yours. Never mind. Ah, I guess Paul Williams really was a swinger back then. Oh well, time for some more swimming and more of the running gag where Peter gets dunked. Only this time... It's a blue Rolls Royce. What? <laughs> That's great. Hey, look, should I continue with the introduction now? Don't ever touch my body. Yes! And it's here where we get a performance of one of Williams' best-known songs, his big villain song from Phantom of the Paradise with the apt title, The Hell With It. Now made even more hellish for completely new reasons thanks to the Croft's water follies. But that doesn't change the fact that this song kicks ass no matter what the context. Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well, something old wiser you just grew older You never listened anyway and that's the hell of it keep things going with Flo's Ballad of the Week, and thankfully this time around it's 100% clown-free, but also quite the whiplash and move from the song that we just heard. Nevertheless, Flossie still sings the hell out of it, even if it is a country ballad this time around. Incidentally, this one is called Born to Say Goodbye, and I'm not 100% certain if they chose the song because they knew they were going to get cancelled at this point, or because it was simply what they thought was the last show of the season at the time. Regardless of those two high points, we now move on to what appears to be a masterpiece theater-type parody where we quickly get an indication that Paul Williams may have knocked back a couple. 
of What We Don't Know as he introduces a piece about what if the Bradys lived during the days of Christopher Columbus. With the magic and money of television, you shall be there. But even though you are there, you shall see what goes on there from the vantage point of having been here. So that, what you hear people saying there, will not be hearsay, but there, there. That, that is neither here nor there. Therefore... Suffice to say that Columbus was quite mad. But enough of Columbus. The man with a well-known substance abuse problem is telling us about another person's madness. Have we mentioned that Williams was drunk on the week that he was filming his appearance? That's no joke, by the way. That was a reported anecdote according to the 2009 book, Love to Love You, Brady, where they talk about the history of the Variety series. And it will become more evident when we take a look at the episode's final number. In the meantime, we see what passes for comedy in the form of... Ethnically Questionable Voices. One o'clock and my husband is not home yet. I'm about to get a phone call from the Gotti family, aren't I? Mamma mia! I'm home! Eh, who cares? Look at your poor mama taking in a washing! So, anybody else in the family want to risk offending any other anti-defamation leaks today? Oy vey, I knew this would happen if we didn't move out of Genoa. She's speaking Italian. We're not even Italian, what do you say? Okay, you know what? I'm now cordially inviting this sketch to give me the absolute worst that it's got. What could possibly go wrong? La, 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 Normally, this would be the part where I would skip past something so insanely inane. Except as part of my punishment for skipping shows, the powers that be have removed that button from the VCR. So, we have no choice but to push ahead. And since this is based very, very, very loosely on the story of Columbus, we of course have a moment where he tries to prove to King Rip Taylor and Queen Alice the Maid that the Earth is round. With hilarious results. Where's the first cake with the travel fetish? Here, your majesty. Don't you throw that at me. Oh, I'm not going to throw it to you. I'm I'm going to show it to you. You see... When the world was a square, people would start here and fall off over here. Okay, how much more time is in this sketch? Oh, 90 seconds? Oh, okay, then I'm just going to use this time to hammer my hand. And hopefully the pain will help speed things along. So, don't mind me. Kinky. Damn it, I severed a nerve. I can't feel pain in this hand anymore. Oh, this is still going on. Maybe if I put my hand through a power sander, I might feel something. 
No. Still not as big a pain as what I'm watching. Let's try it with a miter saw. Maybe something good will come from this. Halfway around the world and business falls off. Still nothing? And the sketch just keeps going? Nonsense. When that nut hits the horizon, it's a goodbye, Columbus. Oh, my wife, she's an art. I'm crazy. All that's left to go in this episode is the big finale. Yay! And since all these finales seem to have a common link to each other, what special theme are we going to get this time? Put another nickel in, in my Nickelodeon. All I want is having you and music, music, music. Music. A show that for nine episodes was peppered top to bottom with musical numbers is now doing a tribute to music. Well, like I said earlier... Perhaps at this point, the writers stopped caring after this show, and also at this point, so have I. Like, why am I watching this? Why is this show a thing? Music is my life. Am I seeing what I'm seeing? Why did I live in a world where this show existed? Why is an otherwise innocuous TV show causing me to want to cut my head open and scoop out my brain? I blow through here. These performers need to be here. Just an old-fashioned love song. Why haven't they checked Paul Williams into a rehab clinic in 1977? Why does everybody on this show look like they need the money? Brady not here? Why can't Greg Brady sing? Why can't my Brady dance? Why did the Bradys continue on into the 80s with more spin-offs? Why did they do a movie in the 90s where everybody else in the world but them live in present day? Why did they make a sequel? Why did the same cast do TV movies? Why the flying fuck is this show as popular as it is to this goddamn day? Why? I ask you for the love of all that is holy. Why? Why? Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. Please stand by while our host regains his sanity. Morphine is the 
best drug ever. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. I think it's time now for the nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. I am honestly baffled over how this show lasted one episode, let alone nine of them. Even more baffling, the fact that people were actually willing to use its campiness as a way to defend how bad it is. When in reality, this show's major sin is the fact that it's nothing more than a cheap cash-in that tries to leech off the success of an existing brand. To say nothing of the potential payday that everybody in the cast and fake Jan wound up getting to do this show. Greed? Hell yeah! Speaking of fake Jan, while we applaud Jerry Reichel for trying her best in awkward circumstances, even the Brady hardcore knew a wolf in sheep's clothing when they saw it. So, no argument there that this show has a dash of fraud. There's also the fact that this show wound up happening because it worked as a fluke on another TV show. Don't forget, if it weren't for half the cast's appearance on Donnie Anne Marie, this would never have happened. This unfortunately triggered Fred Silverman to want to order eight more episodes for ABC. Twelve too many. So, in his never-ending chase for high ratings, the man with the golden gut wound up needing a stomach pump due to his gluttonous desires. But all of that is second to the fact that this show does something completely and totally unforgivable. And on that note, uh, can you kill the drumbeat for a second, please? Thank you. You see, this show slaps the fans of the original Brady Bunch square in the face. Even if they say they unironically liked the Variety Hour, you could probably tell that deep down, they feel dirty for admitting it. Like I said last week, I'm not a fan of the original show by any means. I don't hate it, I just never got into it half or even a tenth as much as some of the fans around the world have for over 50 years. But like I said, the show works because of just how simplistic it is. Someone in the family has a problem, and more often than not, it takes 22 minutes to solve it. Obviously, that's not how things work in the real world. But perhaps that's why this show, and other shows that have co-opted the Brady simplicity, remains as popular as it's been after all this time. It's an escape. It's a break from reality. And it's something that a lot of people aspire for. And especially now in, dare I say, these trying times, people can use as much breaks from reality as they could possibly get right now. But don't take my word for it. In a 1992 retrospective called Brady Mania, the then-surviving cast members and series creator Sherwood Schwartz expressed similar feelings towards the show. If you travel around the world, as I do, you see that it's not just here in the United States, it's in other countries as well. And the only thing that I can think of is that this show does represent everyone's dream. About 10 years ago, I guess I recognized it was going to be there forever, and it was going to be bigger than me. <laughs> In fact, I think a lot of times people are recognizing me and they don't know it, but they just treat me nicer and um, trust me. The, the Brady Bunch, as, as a life experience for me personally, was a, was a good place to be with good friends and good people, cast and crew, and then afterwards, the fans. I think uh, our group beat the odds 
a couple of times. I think we beat the odds by getting in a series like that in the first place, and I think we beat them again by not getting all messed up in the process. This is long before there was a phrase called family values. We had it in the show, and that was because the kids were real. I think that the thing that we have in the show is a sense of hope. And I think the sense of hope is something that we all, we all have to have. I mean, if we don't have hope, we just die. When you've got to have some kind of hope, some kind of faith that things are going to get better or things will turn out right. I think we're born with that. And if you still don't believe me, here now from that same program is a snapshot of how the fans of the show feel about it. How many of you know the national anthem? It's <laughs> like three people are going, I think. How many of you know the Brady Bunch song? and it's such a comment in our society. I think it's just terrific. And we all know the words. It's amazing. Anyone who grew up on the Brady Bunch would just love this show. It's incredible. They were really funny. I had no idea what to expect. I was sort of, you know, kind of here thinking, what am I doing here, you know? But it was very funny. I mean, that it's such a phenomenon. The Brady Bunch phenomenon. What was it? Together, and they were all Now, Take those elements and sentiments and put them into something that is the complete and total opposite of what the original show stood for in the first place, and you're going to leave people feeling confused. Hell, I'm just about convinced that the reason why they did more Brady spinoffs in the 80s and 90s was so they could hopefully convince people to forget that the Variety Show ever existed, which turned out to be the cousin Oliver of Brady spinoffs. So, to everyone listening who probably needed the harsh reminder that the Variety Show ever existed, we feel your anger, and we translate that anger to wrath. And you're probably feeling that anger because these are not the same Brady's you grew up watching. Never mind the fact that it's not even the same jam that you're watching either. Oh sure, they may look like the Brady's, and they may be the same actors as the Brady's, but on this program, they're the Brady's in name only, which also earns this show some bell-bottomed heresy. Even the most novice of fans know the Brady Bunch when they see them. This is far removed from the genuine article. In spite of how batshit crazy it was, the Brady Bunch Hour still earns five out of nine circles of telehealth. And quite honestly, I don't think there's a need to belabor the point any further. Yes, this show has its defenders, but it can't escape being a bruise on the franchise, not unlike a football to the nose. Hey, you guys. Had to get that joke in there. And on that note... Hey, we made it! We finished the season! <laughs> All right! So, what happens now? Oh, right. That. Hello, telehelp. So, you want to know what happens now, honey? Hey, now look, I did the makeup shows. I completed all of my assignments. That's the end of the season. Isn't it? Technically, yes. But now, the big guy's going to take a look at your work just to be sure. Be sure of what? Well, you're coming up on your one-year progress report. Once the boss gets a look at everything, he's going to determine whether you get promoted down the circle, stay where you are, or have your soul get reincarnated as a can of Vegemite. How long is that going to take? He's working on it now. And it'll be ready on, uh, July 12th. It's a little bit past your first year. But the boss... Mm, 
doesn't like working on a holiday. Well, that's a month and a half from now. Should I do anything in the meantime? That's why we're calling you now. Remember the last time you came here and we told you that the next time we summon you that you'd have to jump off your circle because it's quicker? Vaguely. Well, unfortunately, because of uh, recent developments in the world that the boss is still jealous he didn't come up with, uh, we had to drain our lava lake for hygiene purposes. So you're going to have to come down here by foot again. It should take you about a month and a half to get here if you leave now. Seriously? Don't worry. We wouldn't want you to come down here the same way twice. That's why we left a little gift for you at your door to help speed things along. Huh. There it is now. See you in 42 days, honey. This... Better not be one of those ironic punishments hell's known for. Let's see what we got here. A skateboard. I've never skated a day in my life. And especially down such a steep hill as this one. But if that's what they want, how hard can it be? Let's see. Let's just get on here and... Damn it! One of the wheels popped off. Well, maybe I can still do it with three wheels. And away we go! Okay. Two wheels. Uh, listen, don't worry about me. I'll, I'll be down there on July 12th for our season in review. Maybe sooner if these wheels can stop popping off. Until then. If it's not until hell, it's not worth a damn. Maybe I can grind my way down the ledge. I mean, it doesn't look that tall, does it? No? Let's see. That's it. That's it. Hold balance it. Telehell will return on July 12th with our Season 2 recap. The part of the Devil's Secretary was played by Joan Bishop. The part of the Please Stand By Guy was played by Rob Maurer. Could they give me a helmet first? Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. How many floors is this place? There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mindtuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. 
Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.